More and more sport nowadays means there's more and more sport to forget. Here are the stories of three forgotten sportsmen. The member of the circus who bowled for England, a big game hunter who was recalled to play for the Springboks, and a book eighth man who charged his bar tab to management. He never played for the Springboks again. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Let us shut off the wireless and listen to the past, wrote Virginia Woolf somewhere. I can't for the life of me remember where. In this week's podcast, we're going to do exactly that. We're going to listen to the past and in so doing, we'll have a look at some of sport's weird and wonderful characters. Many of them aren't remembered much anymore. Often they've been tragic. Sometimes they've been inadvertently comic. Most often they've been a strange concoction of many strands and many things. What they are and what they mean is perhaps left to you, the listener and reader, to decide. Here are their stories, stories which have been largely forgotten, but not forgotten enough to be left out of this podcast. Edmund Ted Peat was born near Leeds in Yorkshire in 1855. As a young cricketer, he joined a troupe of wandering acrobats, clowns and cricketers called Treelaw's Clown Cricketers. They were so named because they were managed by one Thomas Treelaw. Originally from Cornwall, Trelaw was not without trickiness. He also went by the name of Arthur Thomas Edward Trelaw, for example, spelt slightly differently. He once played cricket for Middlesex and, I believe, a county then called Glamorganshire. But it was his ambition to bring a group of wandering clowns and cricketers to the villages and downs of rural England. It was with these itinerant minstrels that a young Pete Pete was spelt in this case P-E-A-T-E, honed his craft as a slow left-arm bowler. Soon Pete, a bowler who could sink a delivery into a current bun like a pair of teeth, had attracted the attention of Yorkshire, his local county club. Before long, he became one of England's premier left-arm slow bowlers, along with one Alfred Shaw. It was no surprise when Pete was called up for England. Some thought that Pete had the hex over W.G. Grace, the preeminent colossus of the Victorian game, once dubbed institutional by the cricket writer Neville Cardus. Whether this is strictly true or not, Pete and Grace were contemporaries. For Pete, Grace had immensely high regard. Pete's debut came in the New Year's Test between England and Australia at Melbourne in early 1882. Playing alongside his captain, Shaw, as well as others, such as the two Billies, Bates and Midwinter, and Arthur Shrewsbury, Pete took the last Australian first innings wicket to fall to give him his first wicket in tests. His analysis was 59 overs, 24 maidens, 1 for 64. Australia scoring 320 in response to England's 294. Runner-ball cricket was clearly a yet-to-arrive figment of the collective imagination. The scoring wasn't fluent on either side. England faced 170.28 ball overs from Australia, while Australia faced 237 overs from England. Not surprisingly, perhaps, given that the cricket was so stodgy, 
The match ended in a draw. A cricketer's international diary in the 1880s wasn't quite as well and luxuriously stocked as it is today, and the match that made Pete really famous was his second test, which happened seven months later in England. In the one and only test of the series, England played host to the Australians at the Kennington Oval in South London. Grace and Pete were by now in the same side. It was a low-scoring game. Australia's 63 batting first, playing England's 101. The visitors posted 122 in their second dig, Hugh Massey scoring 55 of them and Pete taking four wickets to add to his four in the Australian first innings. England needed to score 85 runs in the final innings for victory. It wouldn't have been the highest total of the match. Surely the task wasn't beyond them. They had grace, the coming phenomenon, and with grace they would surely prosper. As luck would have it, Pete, batting at number 11, was last man in as England made a hash of reaching the winning total. He joined Charles Studd, that's with two Ds, with the England total on 75 for 9, still 10 runs short of victory. Pete scored a 2 off Harry Boyle, the Australian bowler, and then, to the dismay of many, took a mighty heave across the line to be bowled by Boyle for 2. When asked about it afterwards, he said that he couldn't trust Mr. Studd to get the runs for England, so tried to do so himself. Honesty was one thing, craven honesty quite another. Pete's answer was nowhere appreciated. You just didn't lose cricket to Australia. Whether Pete was reminded or not of his days with Trelaw's Circus when he was at the crease, the cricket establishment blamed him for England's seven-run defeat. It was the first time that England had lost a test to Australia in England, so it was a sad day for cricket and cricketers everywhere. And, of course, it prompted the famous obituary to English cricket printed later on the pink pages of the Sporting Times. You know the death notice, I'm sure, but just to remind you, it said, quote, In affectionate remembrance of English cricket, which died at the Oval on the 29th of August, 1882, deeply lamented by a large circle of sorrowing friends and acquaintances, rest in peace. N.B. The body will be cremated and the ashes will be taken to Australia. And so, what has come to be known as the Ashes was born. There were more capable batsmen in the England side who failed twice in the Oval Test against Australia in 1882. Think of Monkey Hornby, otherwise known as The Boss, and Bunny Lucas. Batting orders were more promiscuous in those days, and teams shuffled their orders as though they were a pack of playing cards, so it is difficult to know who exactly the best batters in the side were. Stud scored a duck in the first innings, which tends to support Pete's view that he couldn't be trusted. Still, Pete was the fall guy, and he fell far, lower than a bog. The Sporting Times obituary stuck to him as if he had been tarred and feathered. Pete played the last of his nine tests just under four years later, having taken a record 214 wickets in county matches in 1882. But he was never allowed to forget the oval defeat and in later life put on weight. It was said coyly that he developed a fondness for alcohol. Pete died, aged 45, in March 1900. If he was a victim of his own suspicion, 
he was also a victim of a kind of pre-death death notice. He played on, but his cricket death had been creepily foreseen in the pages of the Sporting Times. Studd didn't fare much better as a cricketer, although the reasons for his withdrawal from the game were different. He came from a prosperous family and had two popular cricket-playing brothers. The Oval Test was his first, and he only played four more tests, mainly, as far as we can tell, because he was overtaken with a missionary zeal that surely would have been better employed as an opening batsman or a canny lobber. As a relatively young man, he fell under Baptist missionary Hudson Taylor's spell, and he spent ten years as a missionary with Taylor's Inland China Mission. He lived longer than Pete, however, dying in what was then the Belgian Congo in 1931. I will share a section of Studd's obituary in the Wisden Cricketer's Almanac. Make of it what you will. Quote, Later on, the state of the multitudes of the Belgian Congo, which had not been touched by any missionary agency, made such a strong appeal to Studd that he went out to that uncivilized region and, despite numerous illnesses and many hardships, devoted the remainder of his life to missionary work there. Posed photographs of Pete and Studd show very little, mired as they are in the photographic conventions of the day. Pete had a long, slightly doleful face and a walrus moustache. Studd, an Eton and Cambridge man, looked slightly more dandified, wearing, in one photo I saw, what I fancied was a maroon-coloured cravat or a necktie. As we follow Wolfe's mild injunction to listen to the past, another photograph of a forgotten man. It might even ring some distant bells. You probably all know it, but let me describe it again for you. The black-and-white photograph of which you are talking shows rugby poles in the background and behind that a sign for Quinn's Bakery, Mayonnaise and Jellies. In the foreground are two rugby players. One is lying outstretched on the grass, having steadied a ball which is no longer there, while the other is dejectedly walking away from the outstretched player, head on chest, his back turned away from him in a portrait of suffering. One object links the two players in the foreground with the posts in the background, and that is a rugby ball. Most of us don't see the rugby ball at first, but it is there, drifting to the left of the uprights as we look at them, hovering for all eternity. There is also a kind of secondary aesthetic bridge within the photo which links the foreground to the background. That's the scoreboard. The scoreboard is on the left of the photo as we look at it, to the left of the frozen ball as it misses the posts. What catches our eye about the scoreboard is that it is incomplete. It says, from top to bottom, British Isles 23, St. Africa, it is a bilingual scoreboard, to something. We quickly realize that the scoreboard has been suspended like this in expectation of a successful kick. The kicker, who is dejectedly walking away, his head hung so low that he looks like a whipped animal, has had four successful kicks under his belt, but this one he has missed. His name is Jack van der Skeef, and this is the last of his five tests, because his miss means that South Africa lose the test by one point, 23-22. He is never forgiven. Like the ball in the photo, his rugby career freezes. There is no thaw.
Like a creature in the permafrost, he is frozen forever. Van der Skaif was allegedly of mixed race, so his position in the Springbok team was already subject to a kind of pragmatic largesse. The administrators and selectors were prepared to forgive him the colour of his skin, however, because he was so damn good. I guess that's selective racism for you. It was said that he could casually hit a drop kick from the halfway line and, when the mood took, could play on the flank. He had grown up in Kimberley, attending Kimberley Boys High. Donnie Craven, Springbok rugby supremo, spotted him while training the South African Army as an instructor in Kimberley during the Second World War and, although impressed, told Fundescape to bide his time because his path was temporarily blocked. He did. Time was a big theme in Fundescape's world. When an opportunity arose, he took advantage of it. He played provincially for Griquas, Western Transvaal and what was then Rhodesia. As a springbok for the first time, he played in all four tests against a visiting 1949 All Blacks. The box won that series 4-0, although the margins of victory were narrow. The New Zealanders argued later that the test would have been even closer if they had been brave enough to disregard their hosts' wishes and selected Maori players. The story goes that after the 1949 series against the All Blacks, Van Escaife was either involved with or witnessed a mine accident. So began a period of wandering. He went up to the Copper Belt in Kitwe, in what was then northern Rhodesia. He continued playing rugby and indulged in his favourite hobby, big game hunting. In 1954, he returned to South Africa with his sweetheart to get married. The following year, entirely against the run of play, he was chosen for the Springboks against Robin Thompson's visiting British Lions. Interest in the series was laced with a tinge of hysteria. There was a flourishing black market in tickets. Some estimated that the Ellis Park Test, the one in which Van Escape hung his head in shame, attracted 90,000 spectators. Thousands of them were in the ground illegally. Like Pete, Van Escape stood at an angle to the dominant culture. Pete was a northerner and, I would imagine, although I've never seen it confirmed, a professional. Where he was educated, we do not know. Van Escave was of mixed race, from the far-flung reaches of the Northern Cape. There was an expedience to picking him against the Lions, and there was an expedience to dropping him too. Van Escave died in 2001. He had problems with his heart, which seems appropriate for a man who first hung his head in shame and was later banned from setting foot in the Garden of the Elect. The British Lions again provided the opposition for the Springboks in another seldom-told story of rugby wonder. It was 19 years after Fun Escape's missed kick, during the all-conquering Lions tour to the Republic, led by the Ulsterman Willie John McBride. McBride's trip in 1974 was his fourth to the country, and he was sick and tired of being on the losing side. With pipe-smoking amiability, he commandeered a talented, powerful, and when they needed to be, brutal side to face the Springboks. They were well prepared, and they were in luck. South African rugby was bumbling through a phase of extreme introversion, a sort of dark rugby ages. Technically, particularly in the scrums, the Springboks were way off the pace. 
and their favoured backs-to-the-wall ten-man rugby, conducted by fly-halves with big boots but small imaginations. Willie John and his management team had thought about it long and hard. They reckoned the books were ripe for the taking. The first test at Newlands only served to confirm McBride's view. In mud and wind and rain, the British Lions won a crabby first test at Newlands 12-3, the home side's points coming through a Darby Snayman drop goal. The box, the box selectors and their fans were dumbfounded. Not only had they lost, but they'd been beaten in the scrums, the traditional seat of South Africa's emotional power. They took solace from the fact that the second test was upcountry at the citadel of Loftus Fasfelt. The rugby planets would realign at Loftus. It was partly a matter of picking the correct team. The Lions stayed in Cape Town after the first test, playing a midweek game against Southern Universities at Newlands next. Several anti-apartheid activists ran onto the field to protest against the Lions' presence in South Africa. They unfurled a banner. This was something anti-apartheid protester Peter Hayne had tried in vain to address with McBride before the Lions left for South Africa. Hayne may as well have been speaking Mandarin to Willie John. Southern Universities, an amalgamation of the University of Cape Town and the University of Stellenbosch players, were beaten 26-4 on the day, their four points coming from a try by Tearaway Ike's eighth man Dougald MacDonald. MacDonald, a bishop's boy who grew up in Plumstead and surfed the Musenberg waves when he could, was a free spirit. His reading diet consisted of as much Ian Fleming and James Hadley Chase as he could lay his hands on. He and some of his UC teammates loved watching the film of the Barbarians' famous game against the All Blacks at Cardiff in 1973, when a move started off by Phil Bennett and rounded off by Gareth Edwards resulted in one of the greatest tries in the history of rugby. It was the kind of rugby they wanted to play. After having been on the bench for the first test, MacDonald was one of seven changes for the second. He found the atmosphere in the Bok camp was so tense going into the test that barnstorming play was out of the question. You dared to even crack a joke. The players were forbidden from reading the newspapers and had little or no contact with the outside world. The selector, Ian Kirkpatrick, came up to MacDonald beforehand and said that, quote, you have the ability to spark a side. But this didn't look like a side who wanted sparking. They were too scared for that. After an age of waiting for the 24-year-old MacDonald and his fellow Springboks, Saturday afternoon eventually rolled along. It was a beautiful winter day on the Highfelt with a big blue sky. Gerard Viviers, the sage of the Afrikaans commentary booth, was in good voice. He said in his pre-match patter that this was probably, quote, the most important match in Springbok rugby history, and Viviers was right. So there you have it. The stage was set. The majority of those in the towering loftus stands believed that after 80 minutes, the rugby status quo would return and the books would take their rightful place on top of the rugby-playing world. The books were not the only side who thought the hard Loftus turf would provide a good opportunity for running rugby. The Lions did too. They honoured their pre-match intentions by running in five tries, three after half-time. Although they ran in five tries, 
they actually won it. A canter, the Lions' 28-9 victory was up until that stage the heaviest defeat ever suffered by the Springboks. Poor MacDonald hardly touched the ball as the action spooled away from him in eddies just beyond reach. It was a bitter anticlimax, made more so in the post-match revelry. Some of MacDonald's university mates came up to Pretoria to see him play. Afterwards, they drank many a beer and charged it to the Bok management. From MacDonald's point of view, it wasn't a career-enhancing move. He was dropped for the third test as the Springbok selectors panicked, which is exactly what they have done after the first test, 1974, the year of panicking dangerously. I phoned McDonald to ask his permission to tell the story before writing this podcast and found him babysitting his grandchildren in London. He said, sure, he had no issues. Quote, I don't want to give the impression that I'm a bitter 73-year-old staring into my coffee, wondering what could have been, he said, and that was good enough for me. There were others like him that year the Lions came to town. Leon Fuchel only played in one test, as did Paula Fourie, Roy McCullum and Johan de Brain, and that list is by no means exhaustive. My sympathies have always lain with MacDonald. He was young, naive, and was cut from different cloth. He should have been given another chance. Afterwards, he took himself off to Oxford University, before heading to Rovigo and Toulouse, where he was one of a trinity of loose forwards with Jean-Pierre Reeves and Jean-Claude Screller. He had good fun on the rugby field, and rugby provided the introduction into his working life. The game was better to him than it was to either Pete or Fundescape. MacDonald was once forgotten, but thanks to a self-published book about his one and only test, is forgotten no longer. The other two, playing longer ago, are further forgotten but not forgotten entirely. That's the tricky thing about writing about the forgotten in sport, because although there are legions of the forgotten, there are those who haven't been forgotten enough to make them disappear totally from view. They occupy a strange place, a kind of netherworld of the forgotten. It's like an official stamp of approval, an official category because, let's not forget, the authentically forgotten don't find their way into history. They don't find their way into newspapers or podcasts and they don't find their way into public consciousness because, well, they are the truly forgotten, lost souls in the wilderness of history, with nowhere, nowhere to go. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow, and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays, and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. 